You join me, please, in reading selection from Mark 5, verses 2 through 7. Reading together. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. And whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. And when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. And with a shriek he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. We will be in Mark chapter 5. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. As we read and study it and learn from it today, we ask for your guidance. And uh, Lord, just make it come alive for us and help us to be able to understand it and have a burning desire to live it out. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Thinking about last week where Jesus showed his power over creation and especially that storm that was so huge. And just kind of thinking back over it, I wonder if, you know, maybe Peter was actually at the at the tiller and uh, as it started to get rough, he said, Hey guys, we've been through worse than this, no big deal. Just hang in there. Um, but eventually, as we read last week, it became so huge and so turbulent, the waves were tossing them every which way. And that's when they woke Jesus up. <clears throat> and he spoke to the storm, spoke to the water and to the waves and winds and instant calm. And the response was to ask the question, who is this guy? The wind and the waves obey him. Now, if we keep on going right from that into today's passage, they had no answer to that question that they actually gave at that point. And uh, at some point thereafter, they just reached the shore, which is the passage that we got into. Um, and as they're on the shore, I wonder if maybe a couple of the ones that weren't fishermen got out and kissed the ground. It's possible. Uh, maybe some said, hey, I'm never getting back in that boat again. <clears throat> we don't know. That's my imagination, having some fun with the passage. Um, but all of a sudden, someone comes running right at them, falls at Jesus' feet, and screams, yells. And this is what he says. Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? Bam! There's the answer to the question the disciples had asked. The disciples asked the question, who is this guy? The demon-possessed man says, you are the Son of God. He recognized who Jesus was. Um, and so, We see that Jesus has absolute power over the universe and the nature and all that he created. And today, as we look into this passage, we're going to see that he has absolute power over Satan and his demons as well. So starting in verse 1, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And let's go ahead and put the map up there, Tim. Um, 
It's interesting because we don't know time-wise what happened. When the storm actually ended and did they have to keep rowing? Because it was from the end of the storm that they came to the shore where the arrow is pointing and somewhere in that circle there is the, the stuff that we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> but they, they got there. And, and here, here they are on the, on the shore and uh, the storm has, has totally been calmed. And um, in this area, there's, there's three different words that are used for the garrisons. It's some of the other gospels say gatherings or gergesenes, but the reality is somewhere in the circle of the area that we're talking about, and it is part of the Decapolis, which was a mostly Gentile area. Uh, many Roman troops uh, put in that area as well, and the Decapolis was an area of ten towns. And so this is a Gentile area. Jesus is going in there, and you know we'll see what happens in just a few minutes. So. So he goes, they get across, they get to the Gatherings. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now, in Matthew's account, we have him saying there are two uh, demon-possessed men. And it says in Matthew, verse 20, uh, 28 of chapter 8, so they were so violent that no one could pass that way. So where this guy was staying, according to Matthew, there's was so violent in his outbursts and the things that he said and did that nobody went anywhere near that they could avoid it. Um, Luke, and, Luke 8 and Mark 5 also tell us, but they only tell us about one of the two men. We don't know exactly why. It's possible that one of them was way worse off than the other, two, than the other one. And it's possible that one really did all of the talking. And that's the assumption that, uh, that we make when we look at both Luke and Mark. <clears throat> and so, verse 3 to 5 really kind of describes this man's life. Okay, so he sees Jesus and he starts coming to meet him. And then Mark says, let me tell you about this guy. And he goes back in verse 3. He said, this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And night and day he cried out in the tombs and cut himself with stones. And so, and interesting enough, the word no one could subdue him, actually the Greek word there is no one was able to tame him, and it's the word that would be used of taming wild animals. And please understand, when you're talking about a human being, that's not a word you would normally use. You would not say, well, you know, let's, we're going to tame this guy. No, but this man, that's the word that's there in the Greek. No one could tame him because he was so wild and so violent. The times they tried, they ended up with broken chains. Um, so this description of him is, is just horrible, isn't it? Just stop and think about what, he's, what he is like. He's possessed by demons, and, and he doesn't seem to have a lot of ability to be able to choose or say or do anything himself. There's some there, perhaps, but the impression we get is the demons are really pretty much in charge. And so he'd cry out and cut himself, perhaps in an attempt to feel something real, to wonder if, if this whole thing, maybe whatever's going on inside his head with all of these demons, if, if somehow he could escape all of that, or maybe the demons were trying to get him to cut himself in ways that he might at some point take his own life. We don't know, but think of it. This was his life, living in the tombs, screaming and hollering through the night and cutting himself. Now, it just came across this quote, and it was really helpful, I think, here. 
The goal of demons, anytime you hear demons doing things, it's to destroy the person who is created in the image of God. That's what a demon wants to do. Um, <clears throat> he wants to destroy the person created in the image of God. And, and, and the man's demonization is evident in this case. You see it. He's, he's social, in social isolation. He's also got superhuman strength, and he's self-destructive. He's constantly cutting and hurting himself. Now, the parenthesis Mark has given us to tell us about him stops, and we go back to Jesus landing on the beach in verse 6. and speaks to the men again. When he saw Jesus from the distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What is it that you want from me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Imagine that. And it tells us why he did that. Verse 8, for Jesus had said, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And so the demon makes it very clear. He's not interested in leaving, but he comes and kneels before the Lord. Now, was he <clears throat> kneeling there out of submission, or was he kneeling there because the man had a glimmer of thought and ability to do himself? We don't know. But they knelt, the man knelt before Jesus, and... Um, that's where he is at that point. Now, I came across this quote about this man this week, and I really, it really says a lot about who he was. This man was tormented and assaulted by the focused power of hell. Talk about a hellish existence. This man understood that. This man lived it. New Living puts it this way, with a shriek he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? Well, Jesus' purpose was to heal and to give life. And the demon's purpose was to kill and destroy. But Jesus wasn't going to leave this man in this condition. Uh, another quote, it's amazing that people in Jesus' day were so blind to who he was. And the demons understood perfectly who he was. Kind of an interesting contrast there. Now, verse 7 again says, uh, the demon is saying to, to Jesus, swear to God that you won't torture me or torment me. And it's here where Matthew gives us some additional insight. What, what did he mean by that? And Matthew 8.29 says, they began screaming at him, why are you interfering with us, son of God? You Have you come to torture us before God's appointed time? The demons understood there's a judgment coming. They knew that was in God's time. And they said, it's not that time yet. Are you trying to speed it up? Are you trying to do something with us? And, you know, you're, this is not something that you should be doing. And in one sense, they're trying to say, you can't, you can't send us into the pit. Jesus probably could have, but Jesus also knew God's timetable. And, and he doesn't do that. Um, and, and so any, this whole statement of, in, you know, before the appointed time make, should make us think about the fact that there is a time when these things happen, when things come. Christ came at just the right time, lived, died, ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit came. And, and, and we're in a time frame now where any point in time could bring the end of time and the, and the things that are mentioned in various places in prophecy. There's an implication here I'd like to just take a look at real quick. You know, with the shriek, verse 7, with a shriek he screamed, why are you interfering with me? 
Jesus, Son of the Most High God, in the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. And of course, Jesus had already said, come out of the man, you evil spirit. So the demon-possessed man groaned and cried out, and 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 and, and in one level, he's kind of a, a small picture of all of creation from the time of the fall and the curse. He's groaning and crying out. Well, Romans eight tells us that creation does that too. Um, Romans eight twenty against its will, all creation was subject to the God's curse way back in Eden. And what is the result of all that? Verse 22, we know that all creation has been groaning as it, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So if you think about it, this man is going through what all of creation is going through, struggling with the whole fact that, that, uh, waiting to be delivered. Now, in his case, the time's coming for that. Creation is still down the road when the Lord brings all that to, to, to bear. A quote I came across here was, The timer on the end of Satan's evil activities was set when Jesus, the Son of God, walked out of the tomb. Jesus defeated sin and death, and Satan was put on notice that his time is short. And that's a great thing for us to remember. And, and all of this kind of makes us think through those kinds of thoughts. Revelation 20.10 tells us about that final judgment uh, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's the judgment the demons were referring to. Have you, you can't do this ahead of time. It's coming, we know. But And so, you know, there's this going back and forth. The judgment of Satan as demons is a sure thing. That's one thing we need to remember it's clearly stated in Scripture, and it will come according to God's timetable. Again, we need to hang in there and remember that. But until then, we are to continue to grow in our walk with the Lord, continue to grow in grace and mercy, and to explain and express that to others, what His mercy and His grace are all about. It, it, it means that we need to focus our thoughts and our hearts and our minds on seeking after Him and walking with Him until He comes back. We're going to move on to verse 9. <clears throat> so Jesus is now having a conversation with this man, and, and at this point, you sometimes wonder who's talking here. I think most of the time we, we can assume it's probably the demons speaking through the man. Uh, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now, Legion, if you're talking about Roman legions, that would be 6,000 men and then some others along the way. Um, <clears throat> does that mean that there's 6,000 demons living inside this man? It, it certainly could. Or it could just be that it's a way of saying more than you could possibly know or count are inhabiting this poor man. So my name is Legion. <clears throat> and he begged Jesus again, don't send us out of the area. And I uh, said, hey, you know, there's a bunch of pigs over there. Um, send, send us there. Let us go to the pigs. And it's interesting, isn't it? The demons, and this is a whole lot of demons with a lot of power, they can't do anything without asking Jesus. Jesus has the power, and he's already made it very clear they're not staying. He's already said, you're coming out. So this conversation was just discussing what the demons may have wanted, and, and, and Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he basically said, go. Go ahead, go into the pigs. 
And they go into the pigs, and the pigs, uh, you know, are driven crazy by the situation. Um, and they run down to the lake, and they've, all of them die. 2,000 pigs. Um, one of the things that, that some people discuss is, how could Jesus do this? And, and why, did he, why did he let the demons kill uh, the 2,000 pigs? There's a lot of thinking on that. Uh, we need to remember this is not a Jewish area, so it isn't an, a matter of saying, you know, the Jewish people have gotten out of line here and God's doing something. This is a Gentile area. And this was a, a, a herd they probably raised to sell to the Romans that lived in the area and lived around. <clears throat> so why did he permit it? And I think, again, this is my opinion as I've looked at it and studied some things. I think that what's going on here is the demons have come out of the man, and this is an illustration to the man who's been set free. This is who has the power, Jesus. Watch what happens to the demons. They leave him, the demons go running down and into the ocean or into the Sea of Galilee. Imagine, imagine what would have happened in his thinking as he's saying, okay, well, they're really gone. And oh, yeah, I can see the impact they're having over there. And so I think that's really what Jesus was doing, was showing that he was in charge. And when he spoke to the demons, they did what he said. Um, he's the one who said, okay, I give you permission. You can go into the pigs. Now, there's some implications here. Um, Again, imagine this poor man and the horror that he's lived, uh, not able to think very clearly with thoughts hammering him from every direction, however many demons they were, just constantly torturing him and, and physically himself acting out of that to do the things that he did to himself. And we get a little glimmer of what Satan is all about in the way that he demonized this man. Okay, If Satan had his way, he would do this to everybody. We see Satan's true intent in these verses. And uh, there are three things here. Satan's hatred of us are all, all humans, and especially Christians. And so they're given the permission to enter the pigs, and the demons destroyed the entire herd. Um, what is Satan's purpose in all of this? Well, Satan's purpose is always to create chaos, destruction, pain, Death, all those things are what he wants, and he wants to, to put on people. So this tells us about his hatred of us. It tells us about his power. This man was possessed with many powerful demons, and, and uh, one of the thoughts that struck me was it might also have been a message to that whole area. There may have been a whole area of this Decapolis that really was kind of in league with demons, and demon, you know, Worshiping demons might have been part of their culture. We don't really know for sure. But if that was the case, this would have been a serious object lesson. Jesus sent them out. They had to ask permission to even go into the pigs. So, And then the third one is Satan's cruelty. Um, he didn't give this man anything special. He didn't make him you know, privileged in any way. He turned him into a nightmare. This was a hideous, terrible thing that happened to this man. Now, as we're thinking through some of these issues, I just wanted to share some thoughts from the New Testament, especially the whole idea of, of demons. Um, I've never been that I know of in a situation where I was with someone who was demon-possessed. 
But I've had friends who've had those kind of dealings with people and, and understand the, the thoughts that have gone through their minds as I've tried to work through with the Scripture and God's help what was going on. But Ephesians 6.12 says, and this is Paul writing and saying this to all of us, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against the mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly realms. And so Paul is saying, listen, we are in the spiritual battle. Keep that in mind. If you're trying to share the gospel with someone, keep in mind that there's somebody else who doesn't want them to hear it. And so at those times we pray, Lord God, we pray that you'd open their eyes and silence any power that is trying to influence him or impact him for evil. And we pray that so that God's spirit will be at work in that person. And so Paul reminds the Ephesians, this is a real battle, and it is a battle of eternal consequences. It's, an, it's a battle of the powers that we can't most of the time see with our physical eyes. In First Peter, he says this, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. Why? He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Think that through. And then he says, stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. And so Peter, Paul's saying the same thing. Paul says, hey, there's, there's these, ang- these evil beings that we are, we are in a war with them. And, and Peter says, hey, stay alert. Watch out. Satan is like a, like a roaring lion and he would like to devour every single one of us. The reality is you can stand firm, stay alert, stand firm, strong in your faith because the Lord Jesus, <laughs> can banish 6,000 demons with a word. Came across this quote. Stand against was a military term, meaning to resist the enemy, hold the position, and offer no surrender. That's what Peter was saying. Stand firm. Don't back up. Watch out. Stay alert. We're fighting an enemy who wants to destroy us, but guess what? The Lord is with you and his strength. Stand firm in your faith. Trust God to do the work that he said he would do. Now, this is not saying, and again, this is, I think, in our culture because we don't see the reality of some of these things. I think sometimes we may get the impression, and maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but maybe we're thinking, hey, I've got this. No big deal, Lord. You know, if I need you, I'll, I'll give you a shout. That's really kind of a not a smart way to, to deal with the things we see in this world. Um, because we can't go face to face, one on one with Satan. None of us have that ability. And if you ever hear someone praying that way, like they are telling Satan what he can and can't do, watch out. They don't have that kind of power. Jesus does. And so we need to always be thinking through that whole idea. What does it mean to stand alert and, and to stay firm in our faith? Um, we trust God for his strength and to, so that we can stand. And, and we know that we're not alone, though Satan tries to make us feel that we are. God is always with us. James puts it this way. And I love, I think James has maybe got the best word for us in this situation. So submit to God, but resist the devil. You want to 
have the blueprint that we need for walking with the Lord and, and for overcoming anything that's coming against us, submit to God. Let Him rule. Go to Him and let, make sure that He's in control of all that's going on. And, and if you've slipped and messed up and you've, you're kind of doing your own thing and ignoring God, it's time to repent of that and go back and say, Lord, I want to continue to walk with you. Give me that sense of your presence always. And when I, I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to. Show me that so that I can again get right with you and confess that and, and move on. So I love it. Submit to God, but resist the devil. And if we're submitted to God and we're resisting the devil, James says, he will flee from you. And not from me or you, but from the power of God, because we have submitted to God and he's the one that says, be gone. And the demons has to leave. So then he says, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. So if you can take one thought away from all of this and the, the, the fact that uh, there are evil beings out there who, who may want to somehow impact what's going on in, in our culture, in our lives, one of the things we can do is say, man, I'm going to stay submitted and surrender to God. And if I slip up and, and walk away or drift away from it, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to submit to God. And I will, with God's help, resist the devil. Remember when Elisha was prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel, um, the king of Syria was trying to, trying to, you know, have a, wanted to have a war with them and take them over. And so he had planned a number of different places where he was going to do, uh, you know, kind of those uh, situations where waiting for Israel to come by and then he would pounce on them and, and uh, you know, take them in that way. And so every time he set this ambush up, wherever it happened to be, he'd get there and be ready and waiting and nothing would happen because the Lord was telling Elisha, oh, by the way, go tell the king, don't go over there. The Syrians are there. And over and over and over, time and time again, and, and the king thought someone was telling the Israelites what they were planning on doing. And somehow they all figured out that, well, it really wasn't that. It was the prophet Elisha was telling the king, this is what's going on. So the king in Syria decided, well, we'll take care of that. We'll just go get Elisha. And you remember the story, of course. They send a lot of cavalry and a lot of army. And in that time, Elisha was living in Dothan, a small town. And, you know, during the middle of the night, they come, they surround the place. And his servant goes out in the morning, sees what's going on. They're totally surrounded by the enemy. He runs back in and says to Elisha, we're surrounded, we're in trouble. What's, what's, what are we going to do? And uh, this is Elisha's words to him in Second Kings 6. Don't be afraid, afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. And I'm sure the servant's looking around saying, there's nobody here. What do you mean more on our side? And, and, and all he can see are, is the army, the enemy. Then Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes. Let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked, he saw that the hillsides around Elisha were filled with horses and chariots of fire. So the servant was seeing the people right around, all this army gathered around. When God opened his eyes, he saw that beyond them on the hills up higher, probably as far as the eye could see, were chariots of fire in the army of God. And that's the message. Elisha was saying, God's with us. That's all that matters. They can have how many, many armies they want, but God's, God's in control. God is sovereign. 
And so no matter what we are facing, we never are alone. We need to remember that. God is always on our side. And so we are to stay alert. We're supposed to stand for him. We're supposed to submit to God, resist the devil. Remember that the Lord and his armies, they're on our side. And we're never alone. We never have to stand up against evil in any way in our own strength. Let's go on to verse 14. Taking up the narrative, the pigs have all run off into the Sea of Galilee and died. And verse 14, <clears throat> the people whose job it was to take care of the pigs uh, now decide, well, maybe we better tell somebody about this. And so they run off into town and they tell people in all the surrounding area what has happened to the pigs. And so it takes some time, I would imagine, you know, and they finally gather up and they all come out to see what happened. And they get there, and sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, was the man who had been demon-possessed. Sitting there, quietly, by Jesus, dressed and in his right mind. And, of course, the people said, oh, man, that's a miracle. How cool is that? Look what God did. No, not at all. They said, this... We're scared. We are deeply afraid of this. And, and, and I think maybe what's going on in them is they had tried to capture this guy, tried to chain him, and they knew the kind of power this man had. And Jesus had come in and all oh, that was gone. And this man was sitting there at Jesus' feet. And they were scared of that kind of power. And so... The people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Can you imagine? I mean, this is an incredible miracle. A man who scared them to death. They wouldn't go near him because he, they were so afraid of him. And, and a man they heard at night screaming and hollering and cutting himself. That was over. And their response was, go away, Jesus. We don't want anything to do with you. This is not what we want. Why? Well, we don't know. (laughs) Maybe it was purely economics. Hey, you just killed 2,000 pigs of ours. What are you doing that? Or maybe it was just fear. This this Jesus just calmed this man that we could never chain. We have no idea how long it took for the man to come and get cleaned up and dress and come and sit down by Jesus, how long it took for all the people in the surrounding areas to come. But they convinced Jesus that it's time to go. In verse 18, as Jesus is getting into the boat, the same boat that just been through the storm, by the way. <laughs> as Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. I mean, hey, Yeah, he should, right? He needs to be discipled. He needs to grow. He needs to be trained. He needs to learn more from Jesus. What does Jesus say? Verse 19, go home. Go home to your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Go home. You've got a story to tell. Go tell that story. Go tell people 
what it was like for you when legion was in you and what it was like when Jesus came and set you free. Tell them that story. And as he did that, because that's what it said he did, the man went away began to tell in the Decapolis, not just his home and his hometown, all the ten towns of that area. They all had heard about him. They may have all have seen him. And he was going everywhere saying, yeah, I was that guy. And this is what it was like. It was horrible. Until Jesus. And Jesus set me free from that. And his mercy and grace. And so he just went everywhere telling the story of what God had done for him. Just what do we take away from this? The event teaches us about the power of Jesus. Yeah, we saw the demons have power. I mean, Jesus trumps the powers of Satan. This event teaches us the power of Jesus. He gave the demons permission. They didn't just say, we want to do this and go and do it. He said, you have to get out of this man. And they did. He is sovereign over Satan and the demons of hell. So that's the power of Jesus. We see the kindness of Jesus. Think, think about this. This is a man who had lived one of the most horrific lives you could ever live. We can't even imagine what went on inside his mind as he was dealing with the hideous evil that was in him. And Jesus said, you have to come out, go to the pigs, doesn't matter, just go. And they did. They came out, they left. And then the value <clears throat> that Jesus places on, a, on one human soul. Why did Jesus cross the Sea of Galilee? Now, there was a storm the disciples needed to learn something from. But he crossed the Sea of Galilee to meet this one man. To set this man free. There's a song that uh, a man named Bob Bennett wrote many years ago called Man of the Tombs. And I left some copies in the back if you want all of it. You can also hear his ballad if you want to hear it online. It's uh, all through, it's in YouTube for sure. I'm just going to read you a couple sections of it because the story that the, the man who had been demon-possessed told was the important thing of all this whole thing. You want to reach the Decapolis? Send this guy. Man of the tombs, he lives in a place where no one goes. And he tears at himself and lives with a pain that no one knows. He counts himself dead among the living. He knows no mercy and no forgiving. Deep in the night, he's driven to cry out loud. Can you hear him crying? That's just the description and then the man of the tombs says this, Underneath this thing that I have become, a fading memory of flesh and blood, a curse, I curse the womb, I bless the grave. I've lost my heart, I cannot be saved. Like those who fear me, I'm afraid. Like those I've hurt, I can feel pain. Naked now before my sin, and these stones that cut my skin, some try to touch me, but no one can, for man of the tombs 
I am. And Jesus responds, Underneath this thing that you've become, I see a man of flesh and blood. I give you life beyond the grave. I heal your heart. I come to save. No need to fear. Be not afraid. This, this man of sorrows knows your pain. I come to take away your sin and bear its marks upon my skin. When no one can touch you, still I can. For the Son of God, I am. The last verse, then, is the man of the tombs speaking. Underneath this thing that I once was, now I'm a man of flesh and blood. I have a life beyond the grave. I found my heart. I can now be saved. No need to fear. I'm not afraid. This man of sorrows took my pain. He comes to take away our sin and bears its marks upon his skin. And this is, this is what Jesus told him to do. I'm telling you this story because man of the tombs I was. That's what Jesus said. Go tell your story. Go tell your family. Go tell your neighbors. Go tell all of the cities how God has set you free. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and for the power of your word. We thank you, Lord, that when we see things that are horrible and evil all around us, we know that you have more power than anything around and we can trust you. Lord, help us to stand firm with your power. Help us to trust you, whatever the situation may be. And Lord, may we always remember, like the man of the tombs, you're the one who set us free. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen.